Hello, and welcome to You Should See the Other Guy, the podcast where we usually watch a movie featuring a love triangle and tell you why whoever did the choosing between various love interests did so poorly and should have gone with a different option. And today, I'm not even exactly sure what we're going to talk about yet. I am Jennifer. I am Samantha. And I'm Sadie. I'm in New York. (laughs) Sadie is in New York. Sadie won't be joining us. This will be a two-hander. Just, just the the aging millennials. (laughs) (laughs) No Gen Z cusp, you know, perspective to keep us in line. When it's just you and I, it really does highlight that Sadie is the youthful energy that makes our (laughs) podcast listenable. (laughs) We're here to creak at you from near the grave. How have you been? God, I'm here, you know, pretty good, actually. No huge disasters. I got a flat tire today from running over a, a broken vape cartridge somebody threw out in the road. But, you know, that's that's not unfixable. <laughs> Those damn kids, you know, in, in their vapes, just tossing them willy-nilly. Well, I think the idea was that in lieu, we have some exciting stuff coming up that we can't even talk about. That's how exciting it is. <laughs> but I think we thought that in lieu of um, doing that, we were going to just talk about some stuff we've seen. Yes. And as we as we already mentioned, Sadie is busy doing Sagittarian things to celebrate the anniversary of her birth. So you're going to listen to what the old people like today. Yeah. <laughs> I literally have opened my AMC app to see what I have viewed and and we can run through the list, <laughs> compare and contrast. I know you want to talk about the White Lotus a little bit, and I want to pick your brain about season two. But Jen, what if I started by extolling to you the virtues of Tar? Please do, Samantha. I watched the trailer for Tar today, and I am intrigued. Tar is a three-hour movie about Kate Blanchett as a lesbian conductor at the peak of her fame, about to conduct Mahler's Fifth Symphony for a live recording at the Berlin Philharmonic, and her life over the course of those uh, weeks unravels as accusations from a former student begin to kind of creep into her life and her professional circles. So it's 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 sort of like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie about like a megalomaniac, like, uh, you know, <laughs> titan of industry, except like with Kate Blanchett as a lesbian in it. Uh, that's a great and with some more delicate <laughs> directorial touches than than uh, than PTA. PTA likes it kind of big and bombastic. Um, this has got some subtle, creeping psychological stuff going on as well. Mm, I was curious because the I, I don't think that this was the theatrical trailer. I was in the uh, in the Amazon Prime app and I watched their little cut together, you know, for Tar. And it definitely came off like a straight up psychological horror movie. Um <laughs> Yeah, that that would be mis-selling it. I mean, I think if you have been in any... I I mean, I think you would like it from going to, like, fine arts programs, right? What was your metallurgy program? 
Was that a... Yeah, that was a Bachelor of Fine Arts with a concentration yeah, in jewelry and metalsmithing. If, if you've been in music, if you've been in academia, if you've been in, in any sort of creative industry or uh, field, you'll kind of like recognize Tar. Like, you know, I remember being an undergrad and it was like, oh, who's the hot professor who like has the cool, exciting ideas and has the really mesmerizing lecture style and, you know, all this like like these places breed cults of personality um and oh for sure i think it's like (laughs) really interesting to explore that and abuses of cults of personality as well i suppose that kind of comes hand in hand with the territory the whole cult part (laughs) i mean i think maybe the difference is is like you know in there's obviously widespread abuses of power in like corporate environments but there's ostensibly like more clearly delineated structures of like, oh, you go to HR with this or, you know, blah, blah, blah. And in a lot of our artistic and academic spaces, those lines aren't always so clearly drawn out. Um, And yeah, I don't know. It it creates an interesting environment. Kate Blanchett. Are you going to watch it, do you think? I do. I definitely think I'm going to watch it. I actually was, it was the runtime that put me off of hustling to see it quickly enough while it was still in the theater here. And now I can like pay to view it already online, but it's like $20. So I'm going to have to be really in the mood because it's not dropped to like $4 to rent it yet. But I, mean, I am definitely going to per minute. at some point. <laughs> the rate per minute. $20, you know, like spread that out <laughs> over three hours. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if no, yeah, if Justin, if uh, if I'm gonna make Justin watch it with me, then that's like the the cost of two movie tickets anyway. But uh, but yeah. it's kind of bananas how quickly movies turn over now. Were movies always out of theaters this quickly, or is it just like really objectively well done movies about lesbian conductors that go out of theaters this quickly? Anything that's just like we need to run it to win awards, we're not gonna make any money off of it. They'll they'll just put. <laughs> in theaters and go. But I mean, if you go back even before our times, something like Return of the Jedi would be in theaters for like six months and there would be like three movies. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Different times. So I think it's like a quantity thing, you know, unless you're Top Gun or Avatar, you kind of get shuffled in and shuffled out pretty fast. Yeah. But a lot of people had your reaction to it, which was simply... Asai and Kate Blanchett. And she is <laughs> mesmerizing in the movie, like tailored suits. Her hair is like the perfect level of messy but contained. She carries herself with this, like, uh, uh, you know, her eyes just kind of sparkle beguilingly, like the Cheshire cat. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> and so, like, the movie kind of draws you into her charm, but also encourages you to laugh at her. Like, she she is a laughable person. Like her, her ego is played for for humor over the course of the movie. But although it is a Me Too film, it's it doesn't feel uh, necessarily like moralistic, like like it's a morality tale or something like that. Like we don't do flashbacks and see what her relationship with this former student was actually like. We can certainly presume that ethical boundaries were 
we're crossed, but you know, it's, it's all left a little murky. Um, and that's kind of like, I, I think that's an interesting way to approach it, you know? Yeah. God. Thinking about it being technically a Me Too movie, I have not watched and do not intend to watch that. Like, what's the name of the the Brad Pitt funded one about the Weinstein news getting broken? Yes, she said. Like, I saw somebody else saying that that one kind of comes off more as like a a glorification of hustle culture than anything. (laughs) I guess an interesting contrast. But yeah, well, I guess to your point about being a not being a moralistic tale about taking down the big bad and yeah, one of uh, the them contributors wrote something really interesting where it's like th- there's a def- I won't spoil what it is, but there's a definite punchline of the movie about that's tied to kind of what Tar ends up doing post cancellation. And it definitely wants to make you laugh, but at the same time, it shows that she's still taking her craft very seriously um, afterward. And there's like a tragedy and a point, like a tinge of poignance there as well of like, like you've been exiled from the halls of power and you're, you're still like, you know, trying to conduct trying to like make the craft happen um it doesn't make her a hero far from it but like you know i don't know it speaks to the way that something can kind of live inside of you separate and but still impacted by who you are morally or ethically would you compare tar in any way with phantom thread oh absolutely i mean both (laughs) sapphic films if we're being (laughs) honest as we as we've spoken about previously Previously, when we dedicated a whole episode to Phantom Thread on this podcast, that was like the preeminent lesbian movie of that year, right? Starring Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, similarly, it's like, I sort of had an aversion to both at first, because like, directors love to make movies about megalomaniacs, you know? <laughs> like, it seems to be a favorite subject. And I sort of got sick of it and avoided Phantom Thread for a while. Um, and then I realized if you do it really well, and if you do it with a really interesting, nuanced, like ethical framework that doesn't feel like you're moralizing or on the other hand, like lionizing this person, then I'm interested. Like I can go along for the ride. I don't know. Where do you land on, on that subgenre? Ooh, well, that's, uh, that's kind of what in interested me. I, you know, I watched Phantom Thread for this podcast. And I think that we all, uh, Sadie included, found ourselves more drawn into that movie than we thought we would necessarily going in. You and I had both avoided it, right? Previously, just assuming we wouldn't be interested. And then Wow, when the poisoning turn happened, I was I was riveted. Um <laughs> but yeah, from the the you know, the stills and from the trailer that I watched of Tar, I was getting strong Phantom Thread feels. So so I am interested. I definitely will check it out at some point and we will we will discuss again when I've actually seen it. Well, tell me about something you've seen. Speaking of megalomaniac, Samantha. I am deeply obsessed with White Lotus season two right now. Have you seen season one? Yes. Yeah, I was, I I loved season one as well. Uh, It was sort of one of those experiences that, 
I had to kind of watch through my fingers sometimes, you know, because just some of the interactions were so awkward. And then there was a part in the final episode that I fully had to close my eyes and could not watch it all that apparently, fortunately, was CGI inserted, I read after the fact. But I was very fascinated with it, watched the whole season, um, you know, was into it. So season two, I was even more intrigued because I saw Aubrey Plaza on the, you know, on the promotional pictures, obviously. And uh, that little, the Megan Fahey, who was uh, Sutton on the bold type. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, and Jennifer Coolidge is back. We'll, We'll see what she does with this. And I have gotten probably even more wrapped up in this season than I did with the first. (laughs) Okay, interesting, because I watched the premiere. Um, I haven't watched the rest of it. A lot of my viewing (laughs) is determined by what device I am logged into which app on, (laughs) you know, like, so HBO Max right now is only on my projector. So it's like, I really have to, I really have to want it. like the um, idea of of making a, a full projection though for some of the scenery you know the the italian vistas in season two yes it's, i mean it's gorgeous <laughs> i will say it didn't grab me as firmly right away as season one and i think a lot of that has to do with murray bartlett i think murray bartlett you just can't take your eyes off of him. His energy as like the hotel manager of like (laughs) barely sublimated rage (laughs) under like this (laughs) sickly sweet, like fondant coating of like courteousness and professionalism. It was so amazing to watch. It was incredible. And I, I would agree with you that again, the, the season one intro, you know, from the start, somebody's going to end up dead. And then the whole device with the, the brand new employee on the job going into labor and delivering a baby. Well, while Murray Bartlett doesn't even notice throughout the day and then consistently can't remember her name afterwards when he's trying to have flowers sent to the hospital, you know, it was, it was really grabby, you know, like <laughs> the, it was one of those roller coasters that, you know, drops you off the cliff immediately. Um, season two as uh, I was actually, cause uh, Justin has watched it with me and we were talking about the little opening theme song of season two. Yes. And so first episode, that first watch, we were both like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, this is this is actively unpleasant. Okay, don't foresee watching this credit sequence when we watch future episodes. And then we uh-huh. watch the next week, and for some reason we sit through it and it just like seems more appropriate. And now we are fully obsessed with the song. It's stuck in my head all the time. I'm walking around singing it. So anyway, that's that mirrors the you know that that sort of descriptive of the way the show built for me as well. Um, I didn't. Yeah, there's no Murray Bartlett in this who grabs your attention so strongly uh, from the jump. But a lot of the performances have really grown on me with time, and I find that this season. 
Uh, oh, so I read an interview with Mike White um, from NPR a few days ago that actually like a friend- Former of- Survivor contestant, yes. Mike White. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask you about this too. D- did you watch the season of Survivor that he was on? Yeah, he was in the like final three. What kind of player was he on Survivor? Like how did he do his strategizing? What sort of persona did he evince? I mean, he just- ca- If memory serves and someone can yell at me about this, just like someone can yell at me about me saying Paul Thomas Anderson isn't as nuanced a director as Todd Field. Um, uh, Anyway, um, if, if memory serves, he was just kind of like... He was good at being with the numbers and good at cozying up to the people who had the numbers. Um, but he didn't really like make any major plays and therefore didn't really have the resume to win. Also on top of like not really having the life story of a survivor winner. I mean, he's a <laughs> mega successful Hollywood screenwriter and like already was at the time of competing on the show. And you, the jury's not going to vote for you to get a million dollars if you wrote School of Rock, you know? <laughs> That has been, like, I keep forgetting that every time and I'll look at something about Mike White and I'm like, holy shit, School of Rock. Yeah. So I wondered about, yeah, about, because I haven't watched, he apparently also did a couple seasons of The Amazing Race. Um, I haven't watched any of his reality TV. I'm not, uh, other than School of Rock, I'm not very familiar with any of his previous, his stuff before The White Lotus. Um But he was talking in this interview about the effect of reality TV and his consumption of and participation in the creation of it, you know, and and how that informs the White Lotus and how strongly he he views it as very similar to making reality TV Um, that, you know, he was talking about like the the music they'll use to, you know, you'll have a, you know, a shot of somebody sitting there just thinking about how they they're hungry for lunch in the next few minutes or something. And they put some kind of ominous music on it and it seems all portentous and you know uh is so suggestive to the audience and that is so apparent to me um in the way that he that that season two um is in particular and all these small interactions especially between because this one is more the season two has been more sexual power relations focused um, than just straight up class differences, you know, class barrier mm. and your, your ranking on that totem in, of season one. Um, and so he was talking about that. They decided to go that direction for this season because the hotel that this is set in is like a converted convent. And, uh, it, you know, it's just too delicious to have the... <laughs> That type of a setting and not, you know, get into some weird uh, sexual politics, I guess. But that's... that's so, <laughs> oh, what happens ask. with the Aubrey Plaza couple? Oh, God. Well, this is... At the time that we're recording this, the finale is airing tomorrow. So, I, too, am desperate to know what happens with the Aubrey Plaza couple. But I have been very interested to watch the that arc of the show play out. Um, so there's two married couples vacationing together who are like elder millennial Samantha and me age. Um, <laughs> and one is a uh, Cameron and Daphne are, are rich, have, have always been rich. He's some big finance bro played by Theo James and Daphne is his cute little 
trophy wife and mother of his children. And they're vacationing with Will Sharp and Aubrey Plaza, um, who are Ethan and Harper in, in this. And they are new to being mega rich. Um, Ethan, has, he's like some, you know, tech bro, uh, Facebook inventor type, whatever. He sold his app and he's made shit tons of money. And both of the men in these couples are the most hateable people. Like it really uh-huh. is. God, Theo James just comes out swinging. Well, you know, Jake Lacey in the first season was that absolutely horrible character. The guest who was the nemesis of uh, Murray Bartlett's hotel manager. And (laughs) so Mike White and his casting team have a real talent for finding the actor who can play like just that guy, like the worst dude, but (laughs) yes, but a slightly different flavor of worst dude. I saw somebody make a meme the other day that was like white Lotus all stars with these two had like Jake Lacey and Theo James. And we're like, like have them fight it out over the last beach chair. And that would be amazing. It was sort of like Jake Lacey was like the old money, you know, wealthy, elite New York, terrible white guy. And Theo James is like the finance guy who lives in L.A., terrible white guy. And like, or <laughs> uh, it was, wow. Anyway, he's he's truly horrible. And he, uh, th- that character's name is Cameron. Um, he was college roommates with Ethan, who is married to Aubrey Plaza, right? And so they have this weird competitive, you know, um, psychological mind games stretching back to when they were in college together. But Ethan comes across like the, uh, you know, the better person um, at, at a glance. He He's not as overtly horrible as Cameron, but it becomes obvious as their interactions unfold. It's because that's like how he measures himself as a person. He likes to keep somebody like Cameron around who he can feel superior or two, you know, and that, uh, and oh, God, and just the ways in which he is awful to Harper, which Aubrey Plaza, of course, is great at playing these prickly, you know, kind of nasty characters. And, uh, and she, you know, uh, definitely has her moments where she makes everybody around her uncomfortable. But her husband is so horrible. He never sticks up for her. In fact, he actively seems to relish like sometimes situations when she feels socially uncomfortable, so long as she's not expressing it in a way that embarrasses him, you know, and, and just so the, uh, I think like, I, I would be interested to know how Mike White was on Survivor. He said in the same interview that he has a very low tolerance for social awkwardness himself, um, in person, uh-huh. <laughs> but he must have his eyes open all the time, like watching it all around him because it's all just so sharply cut these little interactions and uh, where they'll have these little mundane conversations, you know, about nothing of particular importance that are such revealing character portraits and, you know, sort of show you how the, the power dynamics of the, of the different groups work. And there's so many just fun little quotable lines. It's a very, it's a very memeable show too. So yeah. <laughs> I will say the part of the season two premiere that grabbed me was the dinner conversation with the two couples in Aubrey Plaza being like, you know, I'm just thinking about the end of the world a lot. And like, everyone just <laughs> looks at her being huh? like, what are you talking about? <laughs> um, Cause like, 
I don't know. This is not just aging millennial talking, but the last few years, it has gotten much harder to ignore like the breakdown of social symptoms, uh, social systems, rather, like COVID laid that pretty bare. And, um, you know, like, so I do spend a lot of my time talk thinking, if not actively talking about like, is this like the last decade that like everything kind of works even? Um, like, it's sometimes hard to envision how <laughs> we get out of the current mess that we're in, uh, in terms of climate, in terms of class inequality, in terms of uh, environmental uh, justice, etc. And so like, but but it's always interesting to like be around people who aren't thinking about that at all. And yeah. to be like, what reality are you like? How in? do you? And uh, it, I would say both seasons of, of White Lotus have it's just one of those shows where all of the elements come together so well. Um, the costume design is phenomenal. Again, being like showing you things about the characters, you know, that you could pick up on just from looking at them, just from, and that the acting is so good. And so I think that's, it was really the third episode of season two, Samantha, that hooked me um, this time when they split up, they take those two couples and uh, the husbands don't want to go along. Um, Daphne, the, the wife of Theo James, is Cameron, um, the one who who was on the bold type. She wants to go do a day trip to uh, a neighboring city and do some shopping and stuff. And he's acting like that's going to be a drag and stuff. He wants to go jet ski instead. So so she tells him that's fine. You know, okay, Harper's going to go with her. She's, you know, Aubrey Plaza has made a commitment to try to be nice, you know, for for Ethan's sake. She's going to try to, you know, impress them and not embarrass him. So they pack the wifeys in the car and they head off to you know this other city and once they get there Aubrey Plaza realizes that a little airhead Megan Fahey this must be the type of shit she's thinking about all day she already rented them this palazzo to stay at for the night that is just like I Samantha it kind of gives me chills like thinking about the like like the scared chills thinking about how much money you would have to spend to like rent this out for yourself and yeah <laughs> like yeah and it's all just in service of little head games, you know, she's Cameron didn't want to come. And she flat out tells, uh, tells Harper that, well, he's, you know, he has terrible FOMO and really serious abandonment issues. So I just want him to think we're having so much fun that we just decided to stay. And, and so they end up staying. I don't, this, the, those interactions between the wives and then the husbands and how their various nights unfolded from there. I read an early review that was very, uh, that I, I am pretty sure was written by a straight person who was not interested in season two saying that it was just sort of a skewering of heterosexual power dynamics or and like thinking that it was like a boring look at you and I was like what are you talking about like (laughs) for the reasons Samantha that you have so well articulated in the past about why you well you used to find watching the Bachelor series amazing before the editing and everything went completely in the toilet these last couple of years 
Like that's sort of the, you know, I mean, sure. Is it a huge revelation that super rich guy cheats on his wife who knows about it in her own way, does her own twisted mind games to torture him. And like the foundation of their relationship is built on this weird toxic codependency they have where they hurt each other and then make up about it. Like, no, that's like not probably a great surprise to anybody watching, but it is fascinating to watch it unfold. And especially the way, you know, uh, in that kind of reality TV-ish fashion where you, you know, see a few lines of a conversation with some suggestive music and then there's a whole narrative created from there. So I have been having great fun with it. I am worried about the fate of uh, Jennifer Coolidge's character, Tanya, who I found that interesting as well, that everybody loves Jennifer Coolidge. So everybody loves this character because she's very memeable and stuff, you know, but God, she is horrible. And I mean, she was like the real villain of season one. And no, she's, (laughs) yeah, she's like the worst, like, there are ways in which you can rank her as almost the worst kind of wealthy person, which is the wealthy person that pretends that they want to like uplift (laughs) other people (laughs) around them. And I I don't, I, I guess I see why they kept Tanya's character around. I'm, I'm very interested. I, again, I haven't seen the finale, so I don't know who is going to end up dead um, when it airs yet. I think it could be interesting either way if they keep her alive and she goes on to become the only recurring character throughout the series. Or I think it could be cool. I mean, she girl is in danger right now at the point that we have left her in. I am not, I'm I'm worried. I'm, I'm worried at this point. Yeah. But I think it could also be cool if they kill her off, let somebody else be the character who carries us into the next season. Uh. (laughs) It does stretch the imagination a little bit. Doesn't it to have her keep going to it? The way yeah. that like everyone in Cabot Cove, Maine, uh, <laughs> died <laughs> within a four mile radius of Angela Lansbury. Right? Yes, that's yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think like you, you probably wouldn't only suspect Tanya when people start dying around her because she is so out of touch and clueless. It's sort of like, could she even pull it off? But, oh, there was an interesting callback, though, in a recent episode to the point we were just making about um, Aubrey Plaza's character in episode one, talking about it being hard to sleep because of the state of the world these days. And, you know, the the legacy rich people that she's with just, huh? You know, complete glassy eyed blankness, not understanding about it. Well, Tanya has an assistant this time around, Portia. Um, <laughs> she, she does make some weird little, uh, instead of just taking somebody from the hotel to become her emotional confidant this time, she has hired one to bring along with her, you know, and, and Portia is kind of the Gen Z, uh, character and, and, you know, uh, probably more like Aubrey Plaza than anybody else on the show. Maybe Albie sometimes the son of the three generations of Italian men who have come to find their roots in Sicily and also cope with the fallout of, dad's sex addiction uh anyway portia is talking to this uh the, who she thinks is just a guy she's hooking up with who who is a sex worker the the kind of um she doesn't know he's a sex worker um she thinks he's just a you know a dude he is actually a sex worker who has been hired to remove her from the premises at this time for reasons 
But mm-hmm. knowing what we know about him, as opposed to what she knows about him, they start having a similar conversation and she starts talking about how much the world sucks. And 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 from his perspective, he was coming from what he refers to as a, a deep, deep fucking hole is all he'll go into the details about it. He thinks being alive today and being able to eat an ice cream and hang out with Portia is pretty great. So it's sort of an interesting opposition in perspective that he's, you know, in this happy-go-lucky sort of mindset, kind of like, you know, Cameron and Daphne are about things. But just because he was in such a personally suck-ass situation that now that he's freed from that, he thinks right now it's not too bad of a time to be alive. At least we're not in the Middle Ages hacking each other up with swords. So, yeah. Well, speaking of extremely wealthy people in uh, sun-bathed settings, I saw Glass Onion when it was in theaters. Oh, I want to see that too. Oh, your boy, Edward Norton. Yes. Edward Norton, pretty good in it. You know, not not allowed to be fully Nortonized, (laughs) you know? I'd say we were at about 70% Norton. And part of the reason why is he's, they kind of make him a buffoon who's pretending to be smart. He, it feels ripped from the headlines in that it's Elon Musk esque, where it's like you have this wonderkind like, uh, energy surrounding you and yet you're just not a very bright person um so you know i mean to be clear my favorite norton roles are the ones in which he's allowed to be smart pretentious and that's why you hate him um (laughs) or love him i think it's a little tough to imagine uh, maybe because that's mostly the roles i see him in it seems like it would be like watching him act like he was stupid You know, like, I don't know if I could buy him being a not intelligent person. Yeah. Well, I mean, he pulls it off here. I would say Glass Onion is fun, not as good as Knives Out 1. And it's sort of similar with like White Lotus 1 versus White Lotus 2, where both White Lotus and Knives Out the first were very trenchant in terms of talking about class and glass onion has that too to an extent but then it's just kind of like a broader comedy about wealthy characters who are all hateable in their own way with a little bit less of like the class analysis like actually happening um there i think that the there's not in white lotus season two as well uh, that is a valid criticism that there's not uh, the class analysis isn't as much of a focus but i think that it would be inaccurate to say that it's not there because we see the contrast so much between uh, with the exception of the hotel manager once again in White Lotus season two, we have a dysfunctional gay hotel manager. And you know, when they start losing their shit and having ethically dubious sex on the premises that guests are about to start dropping like flies. Um, and she's amazing. Uh, I think that also they kind of took a little longer to warm us up to some of the Italian actors um, in, in mm-hmm. season two. And I am deeply in love with all of them now. But aside from the hotel manager, Valentina really are... Uh, our workers who we see the most of are are all sex workers um, in season two rather than just the the hotel employees of season one. So I think that adds an interesting extra wrinkle there. I'm worried about some of their fates as well. I will say what I appreciate about White Lotus versus, you know, the Knives-averse 
is I don't believe Mike White is on Twitter and Ryan Johnson is definitely on Twitter. And I feel like it shows more and more like mm-hmm. with each entry <laughs> where it's like, ooh, like you really kind of need to unplug your brain from it to like create or else like you've just made something about Twitter. Like the, the same way bodies, bodies, bodies just kind of felt like, well, this feels like it's just Twitter with hand puppets like performing <laughs> the roles of Twitter accounts, you know, like it's not bad. It just gets old. And also, you can look at Twitter if you want that, like, that feeling. I don't know. Like, when I was doing Patricia, which was very social media influenced, I was like, I do need to, like, take my brain out of this world. Like, I can't look at message boards. I can't look at chat apps. Like... I'd, or else you just kind of end up reduplicating everything and and you forget like the soul of like you have to make characters you have to like <laughs> you ha- you have to have independent reasons to care about like what's happening beyond yes just yeah drafting archetypes from your timeline <laughs> It is a treat to see a show that is memeable without necessarily trying to be. And I think I think that's the key uh, that I, I keep coming back to this. But just that point Mike White was making about feeling like there's such a strong reality TV influence in White Lotus. It uh there's just so uh, much memeable material without setting out to write it as a meme, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so Glass Onion kind of feels like that. It has that bodies, bodies, bodies feeling of like everyone here is a Twitter person. Um, and yeah, White Lotus doesn't have that. And as a result, I feel like White Lotus is a little more carefully observed about like how the ultra wealthy like actually behave and interact with each other. <laughs> um, not that I have ever traveled in those circles, but you know, reading profiles or even just like watching like, um, like below deck, the reality show about like ultra wealthy people like chartering yachts. Yeah. Um, it's like, it, it shows you what these people are like, which is just profoundly incurious, like absolutely tasteless. And um, they they just kind of become like children again. Yes. And God, that's the, the Jennifer Coolidge's performance as Tanya. You can tell this bitch has observed some uber wealthy people and she just nails it, nails it to the wall. There's a moment in God, in one of the early episodes, she... Uh, she is abandoned. She's left by her husband, Greg, who she met in the first season of the white Lotus and is upset, uh, you know, because he's, he's gone um, while they're supposed to be on this vacation together. She hires a tarot reader to come to her room and, and and this woman is giving her warnings about things that could be very salient, you know, for the, (laughs) the rest of the season and the events that unfold, but she just gets so upset because she says, you're so negative. I can't believe I paid for this. You're so negative and runs her out of the room. And (laughs) (laughs) she'll have these flashes of little moments. She had one in season one as well. That was heartbreaking when she's 
wrecking the life of this woman that she's led on promising to give her financial support for her business and and has the like you're going to pick this time Tanya to have a moment of self-reflection and decide that you don't need any more transactional relationships in your life you know in this past week's I guess in the penultimate episode of season two Tanya has another amazing speech where she thinks she's trying to give her assistant advice you know about and and inaccurately completely wildly and accurately comparing her own situation to what's going on with the assistant, but says some really profound things about herself and how she's lived her life that, you know, truly insightful while she's saying it under the impression that she's giving advice to someone else while completely not connecting at all that it is exactly what she herself is doing in her own life at that current moment. And it just like, oh, it made me scream watching it. Tanya, <laughs> look in the mirror. Jen, I worry and say sometimes. <laughs> I worry sometimes about your emotional involvement in media. Oh, it's difficult, Samantha. You know, I avoid it a lot because I get overstimulated. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not real. They're fake people. <laughs> they as soon as the director says cut, they go back to being actors again. You know, I think that's why I can tolerate it better, though. Like, I uh, I appreciate the idea of reality TV in some ways, but I was thinking to myself just today, wondering, and of course, I'm kind of at a handicap here, considering that I have never watched the rehearsal. I just reacted, uh, you know, um, violently rejected the just the idea of it without even having watched it yet. But I was wondering why I can tolerate, you know, the awkwardness level on the White Lotus versus and and it is it's because they're fake, you know, they're people who I know are, are there being paid to do it, instead of people who have to keep really living their lives in, you know, that same name and face every day. <laughs> yeah. The last thing I'll say about Glass Onion is Daniel Craig's fashion in it is amazing. He has this little fancy boy swimsuit, <laughs> like blue and white stripes, lots of, you know, handkerchiefs and neckerchiefs and cravats and things. And um, and there's a little cameo of someone playing who's implied to be his husband or boyfriend. So look out for an exclusively gay moment. Uh, when it hits Netflix. It's a little more than like a Star Wars level exclusively gay moment, but yeah. Okay. I had read Let's just say I would have liked to see Daniel Craig and this uh, actor kiss each other, and we don't get to see that. We Mm -hmm. just get the implication that they're together. I would say my one biggest criticism of White Lotus Season 2 now is that you can tell that Mike White is much more comfortable at... Uh, depicting men having sex than women. Uh, I've and I, it was kind of appropriate to, but the one Wallowa sex scene we have gotten um, in season two was very, you know, just a sort of a fuzzy shot and then a fade to black where there's all kinds of of dudes, you know, rubbing parts on these shows. So you think about that, yeah. Mike White. You give us some more explicit gay ladies for season three. One of the only other things I've seen is the menu. Which I I don't think you went to see, right? No, I did read the recap. Another wealthy ensemble comedy satire. (laughs) It seems the way to get something made these days is to say, (laughs) I want a bunch of attractive people to play very wealthy people. Um, To me, it's like a symptom of like the end of civilization, right? I don't know (laughs) that it's like... 
we're all we're all mad about wealth inequality, but all we can do is make movies where wealthy people die or are humiliated. <laughs> Like we've been, yeah, anesthetized by entertainment to be like, ooh, I'll have to work until I'm 85. <laughs> but at least I can watch the people who are making me <laughs> work until I'm 85 get murdered at fancy resorts. <laughs> anyway, the menu was pretty good. It was solid. I will say there's a scene involving Anya Taylor-Joy eating a cheeseburger, and it's supposed to be very cathartic and a big contrast to the hoity-toity food that she's being served at this fine dining establishment run by Ray Fines. And um, I don't know. I find it hard to believe some people taking real joy in a cheeseburger and someone who looks like a five mile per hour gust of wind could carry <laughs> them into the sky, like falls under that header for me. Samantha, do you remember, was that Hardee's? Well, I don't remember which, which chain it was, but back in the early oh, 2000s, yes. <laughs> this commercial was It was like Paris Hardee's Hilton. Carl's Jr. They're yes. the same company. That's it. And it was like, yeah, women with like as little body fat as you can have and still be walking, you know, trying to like sexually chow down on cheeseburgers, like while lounging on like luxury cars and stuff. And <laughs> that's all I can see in my mind when you just said the words Anya Taylor Joy enjoying a cheeseburger. Uh, that's <laughs> yeah, but it does have you know friend of the pod. I, I, well, uh, in our minds, someone we admire on the pod, Nicholas Holt from Warm Bodies. <laughs> And Nicholas Holt is really good in it. He plays kind of like a fanboy for Ray Fine's uh, food. And he's just like obsessed with it. And Anya Taylor Joy's like, I don't understand this like moss dish. And he and he's just like rapturous over like all of it. <laughs> so I would recommend that one, I suppose. And, you know, basically, I have a mountain of screeners now through work. So if there's something out there I want to watch, I can. One of the Ooh. small perks of working in one of the most tumultuous sectors of our economy, aka uh, digital media. But um, I don't know. Award season fair, often not for me. Give me the genre stuff, you know? Oh, speaking of genre stuff. So that is the other thing that I have watched lately. And I actually went into it somehow my, uh, you know, I was still paying attention to Twitter last year, but it failed in alerting me that the 2021 Resident Evil movie came out apparently oh. last November. So I wanted to watch that right last week. And I sit down and I'm like, yes. oh, shit. Yeah. Resident Evil on Netflix. This must be it. Click through. I'm waiting on like Leon and company to appear because the one that apparently is separate that came out last year was like a Raccoon City remake, you know? No, mm -hmm. this was a completely new Resident Evil TV show. And I, I loved it too. Really? I okay. I started did. it. <laughs> And Samantha. I like the guy who plays the d researcher dad. Yeah. Oh, how far did you Wait, get? Wait, that's, that's Wesker. That's supposed to be. Okay. Yeah. That's Albert Wesker. That's Albert Wesker. 
So this is sort of like taking names and inspiration from the lore, but or is he going to become the evil head of the Umbrella Corporation by the end of the season or something? Well, very sadly, Netflix did Netflix's thing and canceled the show at the end of season one. So, oh. so they leave us with a setup to grow and go from where we were that is tragically just going to have to be fulfilled on archive of our own and fanfic. But yeah, there's not a lot of similarity uh, to uh, Wesker is the only direct like name that comes through. And, and of course in like classic resident evil fashion, I guess that that's how I was explaining it to somebody else who asked if I want to say, if you go in expecting the classic, you're going to be upset, but that's exactly what I did. And then I wasn't upset. And in fact, I loved it, but I am a big resident evil fan in most of its forms and enjoy seeing the format and genre be fucked around with. Um, this one, <laughs> it's different characters and different, you know, setup in a lot of ways, but a lot of the classic tropes are still there. Like the, you know, the ethically dubious research dad working for the evil corporation and the daughters who are definitely going to get bitten by zombie research and, you know, the evil lady boss bitch, uh, who's in charge of Umbrella, who I am in love with, who yeah, is- <laughs> I saw you post her makeup Lux. I'm obsessed. Uh, She's also, uh, she's gay in this one. Of course, she's like evil and drugging her wife with the, you know, the happy drug to keep her. um, I I don't know, honestly, why she still wants to be married at this point. A lot of the motivations are very fuzzy, which also it is very Resident Evil. There's just, it's hugely silly. Like the the first episode starts out with, you know, it's we're in this post-apocalyptic world. This chick is like avoiding, you know, uh, getting annihilated by the the zeros they're calling them in this one instead of zombies, and then somehow like attracts like a giant bus size Resident Evil virus infected caterpillar that tries to kill her. And at that moment, I okay, was like, I watched as far as that. <laughs> I I did see some of the first episode, yeah, and I was like, that doesn't look like a, a Resident Evil monster. It looks like the very hungry caterpillar. <laughs> But I mean, like, like, God, any animal that you meet, in a, except for like the dog who, uh, if you let the dog out of the trap and it helps you like versus El Gigante and like Resident Evil 4, all the animals are going to end up turned into like terrible Resident Evil monsters. I, I, I feel like it was highly enjoyable if you like have no expectation that like people's motivations and actions will make sense whatsoever. And, and they don't. They shouldn't. <laughs> I, I mean, I'll say two things. One, what put me off it a little bit is like, I think I'm done watching media about teenagers for a little while, <laughs> you know, at least television about teenagers, right? Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me that I don't find high school uh, just an endless well of storytelling for the duration <laughs> of my entire life. But I'm running, I'm running on empty there. But I put it to you, Jen, that the mistake that many Resident Evil adaptations have made is thinking that the source material needs to be elevated or made more coherent. It does not. Yes, exactly. (laughs) It does not. And it is always a disservice if they don't try to make it make sense. Just don't. (laughs) 
what made it beautiful in the first place is that it was already kind of like this is our like uh, like a a Japanese lens through which we are interpreting American action movie and cop tropes, you know. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Um, like Leon Kennedy, like the floppy haired, like <laughs> waif, like SWAT team member <laughs> is like exhibit A in that. And yeah, like nobody should have their motivations explained like the, the beyond, uh, Umbrella Corporation made zombies. We need to take down Umbrella Corporation. Like the, the closest they have to like a, a gray area character is probably Ada Wong, right? Yeah. And it's and oh, they <laughs> they sort of hinted her having her own mysterious motivations and <laughs> agenda, but it never actually makes sense. She's just there to kind of like flit in for two seconds, look super sexy, say something cryptic, and then like so bounce. the funniest, but Resident Evil Six is my personal favorite of the games, and uh, that is an unpopular opinion, apparently, amongst it's a bad the game. world. Oh, oh it's, it's responsible for our friendship, game. but it is not a good game. <laughs> it's incredible, Samantha. That game gives us a full Resident Evil soap opera split across three interconnected storylines <laughs> <laughs> that reveals the bond between the two characters on it, you know, while they're doing like the stupidest possible, like death-defying shit you could possibly imagine. And then if you play all three of those, Samantha, you unlock the Ada storyline, which is amazing. Because you get a whole storyline of being Ada and like seeing what she's up to, and it does not make her any less opaque whatsoever. This is <laughs> like incredible. And if you play it because it's meant to be like a co-op game, you know, for two players, each storyline. But Ada is a lone wolf, obviously. Nobody ever. So if you have a second player to play with her, then they are just an agent with no name and they can't interact with the little puzzles and stuff. Um, they could shoot yeah. and stuff, but they just teleport to wherever she is when she needs a little backup. And I love it. It's amazing. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, the teenage storylines, there, there's too much of it. I fast forwarded a little bit of the the teens talking to each other. The the Resident Evil on Netflix 2022 is split between the twin daughters of this Albert Wesker in the past, which is 2022, and then it what is going on in 2036 after New Raccoon City has had its incident and the world has been annihilated by the virus. What would you rate Resident Evil, the television show? Ugh, I mean, it would have to be a solid three out of five overall. But it's one of those things that for me personally swings wildly back and forth between like five out of five, like fist pumping on the couch moments and then being like, okay, I think I'm going to fast forward on this episode where the teens are solving a puzzle to figure out where their dad left the go bag in case things went bad, you know? So a mixed bag. I did enjoy the musical cues, how they kept using current pop songs to indicate that it was the past, which is now. And there is very little pop music in the future unless someone is my controlled by a virus and puppeted by someone else yeah it's radioactive pop music in the future it's, <laughs> it's caterpillar pop um 
Well, I'll give Tar five out of five stars, and that will be our ratings for this episode. Um. <laughs> I'm going to give White Lotus two a five out of five too, and I'm I'm a little bit worried about the hubris of doing that as I haven't seen the last episode yet, but I'm invested. Jen, what what exotic location should people take you, me, and Sadie to for <laughs> one of us to get murdered? Oh, for us to get murdered. Holy shit. Samantha, you need to give me some t- time to think about like this important of a choice. I think I'd like to be murdered in the Alps. <laughs> the, the Alps is a good one. Damn. I was thinking more small town. I don't know. I wouldn't mind being pushed off a pier down in the Florida Keys where we went to watch the sunset that time when I went to visit you in Miami. That would be mm. a pretty nice place to die. Where should we murder Sadie? <laughs> Sadie's too young to die. City Museum. (laughs) City City Museum Museum for Sadie. (laughs) Oh, man. She'll just add to the legend. She'll sit there till her bones molder and then she'll be found. And like everybody's going to be like, wow, that's the City Museum for you. And speaking of Sadie, she has our list of patrons, but we can say follow us on Twitter at YSSTOG. You can go to patreon.com slash YSSTOG. We've had off-air conversations about making a more routinized recording schedule and adjusting tiers to have more realistic expectations of what we can all output while still uh, uh, feeding ourselves under this capitalist system in which we live in. Uh, So expect that. But also... We can't say what yet, but you will have some very exciting content in early January from us. <laughs> we'll do, I'm sure, like a Christmas movie between now and then, but there will be something big. The, dare I say, the most monumental event in the history of You Should See the Other Guy? I would say maybe the most monumental event in history. <laughs> <laughs> it could be might be a little hyperbolic. Uh, it could be. Who knows? I mean, Ra- New Raccoon City could be about to unleash the virus again in mid-January. And then... Yeah. <laughs> you won't want to miss it. All right. Farewell, everyone. Jen, are you going to oh. say bye? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, but then you sounded so decisive in your farewell that I was just like, wow, she said it. We are done here. Yeah.